Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A little over a decade ago, I wrote a book called Emancipation, How Liberating Europe's Jews from the Ghetto Led to Revolution and Renaissance. The book, which is still in print, told the story of what happened after the half-millennia of ghettoization, that period roughly from the Black Death sweeping across Europe to the French Revolution and Napoleonic Conquest. 500 years when Jews were legally segregated, forced to live apart from Christians. In that period, Jews figured hardly at all in European life, and then in the hundred years after, Jews had a disproportionate influence on ideas that shaped history, Marx, Freud, Einstein, and writers and artists too numerous to mention. Why did this happen overnight? That was what the book was about. Life in the ghetto was not a separate but equal existence. It was pretty backwards. As I researched the book, I kept discovering remarkably interesting people who had been completely forgotten. Why? Well, the community that might have remembered them had ceased to exist during the Holocaust. I spent days in the library learning about their lives, even though I knew much of what I discovered would never be included in the book. I began to think of myself as a hunter of Jewish ghosts. In 2010, shortly after the book came out, BBC Radio 3 sent me around Europe to look for my ghosts, and I wrote a series of essays about them. They're ghost stories, but true. What follows is the first of these essays, and I'll be posting the others at the website, one at a time, over the coming Passover period. I hope you enjoy them. Now, I won't come back after this story is over, so I'll do the commercial now. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. The bells of Amsterdam's Westerkirk told another hour past, another hour to come. Here at the corner of Prinzengracht and Rosengracht, the city goes about its business without listening. Workers on cycles, on trams, head home in the early part of a late winter evening. Just at the horizon, a line of light, silver as a herring's skin, gives a hint of the longer days not far off. The people going home at their steady pace, they don't do rush even at rush hour in Amsterdam, pass the church without a glance at the statue of a girl in the little market plaza that separates the building from the street and canal. It's a bronze of Anne Frank, who lived for a time just around the corner from the Westerkirk in a hidden suite of rooms. She stands on a plinth, perhaps two-thirds her real size, hands clasped behind back, pleated skirts falling to below the knee. It might be a Degas sculpture of a ballerina, if Degas did innocence rather than lusciousness. Anne Frank is the most potent symbol of the catastrophe that befell not just the Jews, but the whole continent in its terrible six-year convulsion. She has been a perfect symbol for seven decades. There is virtually no hero or heroine of that terrible time who has not been debunked, whose clay feet have not been exposed. But Anne survives without a mark on her reputation, the all-purpose representative of the innocents destroyed in the Holocaust. Anne Frank is a ghost but just one. Europe is full of Jewish ghosts, more ghosts than living Jewish people. I feel them everywhere, 
It's odd. I'm not religious, have married outside the faith, am integrated, secular, Hellenized, as a radical Jewish settler in Jerusalem once called me, yet I look for Jewish ghosts wherever I can in Europe. Not ghosts of the six million. There are plenty of ghost hunters looking after them, and sadly more than a few people today denying they even exist. No, I look for the ones who came before. They too need to have their unquiet spirits appeased by living remembrance. The black weight of the Holocaust cut the connection to what happened in the centuries just before the elimination of the Jews in Europe, the era of emancipation, when ghettos were opened and Jews joined the mainstream. These are my ghosts, and they're everywhere. Although it isn't likely the unhurried workers heading home know that. Nor is it likely they know the story of emancipation actually began in Amsterdam, on the other side of the city, in the shadow of another church. A more joyous peal marks the passage of time at the Zyderkirk, the first Protestant church in the city, foundations laid in 1603. Its peal reached into my ghost's ears as well, because at around that time, Amsterdam began to acquire a Jewish community. For most of the Jews arriving in Amsterdam in the first decades of the 17th century, this was the last stop on a journey that had begun in 1492 when they were expelled from Spain and continued via Portugal and its dominions in South America. When the overwhelmingly Protestant Dutch provinces successfully rebelled against the Catholic Spanish towards the end of the 16th century, many Portuguese Jews made their way to the Netherlands, particularly to Amsterdam. Here they were granted the status of resident aliens and began to build a life within the sound of the Zyderkirk church bells. Ghost hunters are archaeologists of the ethereal. We cut metaphorical trenches from the surface of the present through layers of accreted history. On the surface today, the area around the church is still full of resident aliens and the alienated, huddling together voluntarily. Of course, none of them are Jewish. It's the city's unofficial ghetto for representatives of the social changes that have washed over Amsterdam since the 1960s. The trench I'm digging extends four centuries down and a hundred yards to the other side of the Odeschance Canal, to a knob of land still called the Jodenbert, the Jewish district. Here, the Portuguese Jews organized their own synagogue, schools, and religious courts. They were not forced to live there, but a kind of self-ghettoization kept the community physically close together because the daily rituals of Jewish life made it convenient for everyone to live close to the synagogue. The Jewish ghosts of this city are more easily accessed than any other place in Europe. At one end of the Judenbriestrat, Jews' Broad Street, is the house and studio of Rembrandt, who painted a number of his wealthier Jewish neighbors, his genius still gives them life today when you look at them in the Rijksmuseum. At the opposite end of the broad street from the artist's home is the great Portuguese synagogue where the Jews worshipped. On a continent filled with architectural monuments of faith, we Jews have no old houses of worship, so it's a good place to go and feel the ghosts. The absence of historic synagogues is not entirely down to the Nazis, in the four centuries of ghetto life before emancipation, roughly from the time of the Black Death through the Napoleonic Wars, most synagogues were made of wood. Impermanence was a feature of life. Fire and expulsion destroyed whatever architectural heritage there might have been. 
But in Amsterdam, the wealthy Portuguese community built in brick and built on a large scale. The synagogue, the Esnoga, is a massive rectangular box whose dimensions are supposed to echo those of the temple in Jerusalem. It sits within its walled precinct, towering over the motorway traffic being routed under the Waterloo Plain for points outside the city centre. You feel and smell the place first. Damp clings to your skin and makes tangible in the nostrils the smell of unvarnished wood and sand. This is still a working synagogue, and the handful of people who worship here are also engaged in willful acts of preservation. The floors have never been polished, because muddy boots would ruin the finish. Sand was what was laid down on them at the first, and so it is to this day. No electric lights, either. The massive chandeliers are still lowered from the three-story high ceiling to have their more than one thousand candles lit before a service. Once your nose and skin adjust to the moist smell, you become aware of the light. The Esnoga was built around the time Sir Christopher Wren was building St. James's Piccadilly, but it has more windows, and they are much, much larger, so that what light there is in the day floods inside the building. Daylight is nice, but I wanted to see the place illuminated by a thousand candles. I asked the fellow who sold me my entry ticket whether there would be services that evening. No, he explained, the community is too small now. Before the war, Amsterdam's Jewish population was 120,000. Today, it's around 20,000. There are only 200 families who follow the Portuguese or Sephardic tradition. There is a room in the Esnoga complex for daily service for the handful who worship regularly. The great synagogue itself is only used a few times a year, like the High Holy Days. He laughed ruefully. Maybe we should give the building to the Muslims. They could fill it every day. The community that built the Esnoga was confident, proud, and wealthy, and the building survives not so much as a house of worship, but as a monument to its members' separate but equal place in Dutch society during the Golden Age. The ghost I want to find more than any other in Amsterdam was born into that same community, but expelled from it, and his presence wiped away. Leaving the Esnoga in the drizzle that fell the whole time I was in Amsterdam, I walked back across the Waterloo Plain to the Moses and Arenkirk, equally massive in size, but nowhere near as light as the Esnoga. On the site of this church was the birthplace and early home of the philosopher Benedict de Spinoza. In 1656, for reasons that have never been made clear, Spinoza was excommunicated by the leaders of the Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam. It is hard to convey the meaning of that excommunication today. To be cast out in this way was more than psychologically painful. It was physically dangerous. The modern idea of the individual making his own way in the world did not exist yet. In the seventeenth century, the community was your identity and the source of protection, friendship, and security. Spinoza turned excommunication into personal liberation. He told a friend, they do not force me to do anything I would not have done of my own accord if I did not dread scandal. I enter gladly on the path that is open to me. The path he walked led him away from Amsterdam, ultimately to The Hague, but it wasn't the physical place his journey led that was important. It was the place in his mind, a place where he could think about the nature of God and the nature of the states men create to bind themselves together. The two subjects in his time were linked 
inextricably, and he intended to break that link. In the one and only book he published in his lifetime, the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, Spinoza argued that if society curbed freedom of thought and speech for religious reasons, the peace of the state would be destroyed. The clergy have no special political role to fill in the state. Indeed, it is disastrous to grant religious functionaries any right to concern themselves with state business. He stated clearly that the laws of human nature applied to everyone equally and that no one group was elect. He suggested tolerance be the core of the social contract. The purpose of the state in reality is freedom. This meant democracy was the most natural form of state because it is not based on coercion or fear. In this way, he concluded, all remain equal. No modern philosopher had ever used democracy like that. Spinoza knew he was on dangerous ground. The clergy, Catholic and Protestant, sat at the right hand of Europe's rulers. This book challenged their power directly. Spinoza was a brave thinker, but no martyr. He published the Tractatus anonymously. But the world of Dutch philosophy was small. Everyone knew who the author had to be. The renegade Jew from hell, as he was unaffectionately known. Baruch Spinoza died alone at the age of 44. He was never reconciled to the Jewish community. The essence of him returned to Amsterdam. His desk, with all his papers locked securely away, was transported back to the city of his birth. He left instructions for publishing them posthumously. There were other political philosophers who built on the foundations laid by Spinoza, and a century after his death, his writing underpinned revolutionary thinking in the United States and France. During the French Revolution, the notion of tolerance was finally extended to Jews. The ghettos were abolished, citizenship granted. Spinoza's expulsion from the Jewish community led directly to the dissolution of what held the community together, its segregation. I went looking for a plaque in the Judenbert to mark the fact that Spinoza was born and lived here. There may be one, but after making a couple of circuits of the Moses and Arankirk, I couldn't find it. Anne Frank has her little statue and museum, but the life she lived and lost would not have been possible if Spinoza had not been forced to leave the community and make his own way in the world. Surely he's entitled to more than my remembrance of him. I thought about this one evening, sitting in the courtyard of the Zyderkirk. I thought about Spinoza and Anne Frank. I thought about Spinoza and Rembrandt living down the block from one another, and it's impossible to imagine that they did not at least have a nodding acquaintance as they went about their business on the Jews' Broad Street. I sat on a bench, waiting for the peel to begin again. A young couple sat one bench over, smoking, nuzzling, laughing lightly. I wanted to ask them if they knew about Spinoza. Did they know about the Jews who used to live outside the gate on the Broad Street? But I didn't, because of course they know about Spinoza, the way German students know about Kant, or British students know about Locke and Hume, a name, a few key words. As for Jews, there are virtually none left to remember the way it was in the Golden Age. Perhaps I could just ask them for a cigarette as a way of starting the conversation. And then I realized the minute I told them I was looking for Jewish ghosts, they would walk away, or maybe even call the police. There's a crazy man on the loose. No, no, looking for ghosts is a private matter. 
best to tell only those you trust about them.